Hello, everybody. Well, it, as Mark said, this will be my last week teaching through Ephesians. It's been uh, it's been a blast. I've loved it, and it's always fun to see what the Lord does in my heart as um, as uh, as I get into the Word. And it's funny, you know. Today we're going to go through a big part of it is going to be um, this the armor of God, which really is um, understanding the power that you have access to to repel the flaming darts of the the evil one, and it's always amazing when you get, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but when you get really heavily involved in, um, in Scripture, or you're trying to make a great effort to honor the Lord in a specific area of your life, that that seems to, sometimes you incur an assault on that, and, uh, and that was very, and so I ran into that, not in any major way, but definitely in some, in some areas, um, mostly around humility, um, for me, and when I was going through this section of um, the spirit of, or the armor of God, it was really neat because you see, you know, Paul is very specific about the fact that we have an adversary, a very real demonic power that would seek to derail us, could never take away our salvation. That's secure. We talked about that in Ephesians 1 through 3. But to sideline us or to attack us, and it, and it was neat because I felt it, and which meant I kind of felt like I was on the right track. And so it's kind of a good litmus test for me. So, um, so anyway, so that's just my own little sidebar. But it's been an absolute joy to to go through this with you guys, and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And um, we're going to go quickly again today, just because there's so much content uh, to get through. But um, we're going to be walk, working today really on. Um, I titled this "Know Your Role and Strap on Your Armor" under the context of walking worthy. So we're going to get into our roles as husbands, wives. Uh, children, both grown children and, and young children, and um, employees or slaves, and our role to our earthly masters. And if you are an employer or have people under you, uh, what your role is as a as an earthly master. And then, uh, and then we're going to get into the armor of God and a brief kind of overview of of that. And so, with that, we'll go ahead and get started. So uh, we're going to be in, starting off in Ephesians uh, five twenty two. But in a general sense, this section from 5.21 to 6.9 pertaining to the, to the various roles found within the members of the household and just in life is tied to the command in 5.15 where he says, Therefore, watch carefully how you walk. You know, and, and Paul began this second, we've, we've labeled this whole series off of this idea of to walk worthy in the calling to which you've been called in the beginning of 4.1 through 3. And this is a summons he also repeats in 4.17. You should no longer walk like the Gentiles walk. And so Paul is very concerned about our walk. And he goes on and says in 5.8, walk as children of light. So Paul is deeply concerned with us as believers that we would develop conduct that is completely consistent with our call to live in a relationship with the one and true and holy God. He's very concerned about this. What you believe will dictate how you act not the other way around as the Pharisees would, but it's a very real sense that Paul urges us here. And in 5.17, he urges us also to understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. We talked about this briefly, that that's not necessarily looking for a specific direction. Do I take this job? Do I marry that girl? Do I go to that school? It's really the will of the Lord is the salvific uh, plan of redemptive history. That's the will of the Lord that we have foundation in, and it's our salvation that we have foundation in, and that's the will of the Lord that we align our conduct to. And that's the idea here. And so, 
this, this passage immediately here is, is going to deal with that, but it's dependent. We've got to get a little bit of a running start. It's dependent on Paul's exhortation of 5.18 where he says to be filled with the Spirit. I like Paul that he doesn't just tell us to do a bunch of stuff without giving us any rationale or ability to do that. And so in 5.18, he exhorted us to be filled in the Spirit. And, and one means of being filled in the Spirit is submitting to one another in the fear of Christ from 5.21. So and we have this great context of unity that we've really been kind of building this whole worthy walk around, right? This, this unity that exists within the church, within one another, within Christ's body of which Christ is the head. And so uh, we submit to one another for this idea of uh, unity among the community of believers that we all live in. At the same time, Paul confirms that the filling of the Spirit is also predicated upon fulfilling a set of distinctive role obligations for each social group that we would find ourselves in, whether it's in the Christian household or out in the world. And so to be filled with the Spirit and submit to one another as husbands, as wives, as employees, as friends, as all those things. And so um, this is very important to Paul, and this is a very practical outworking of how it would look. That whole put off, put on section that we went through in some great detail last week, now this says, okay, well now put off and put on in your specific role that you would find yourself in. And so it's very practical. And Paul addresses husbands and wives first. And the most striking part of this section is how Paul establishes the, the Christ-church relationship um, as a pattern for how husbands and wives should relate to one another. And this is just jumps out. Um, Paul's Christological teaching here almost overwhelms the fact that he's even given instruction to a guy and a girl, you know, a man and a woman, because he's so Christ-focused. And it really takes the pressure off of us, because we're not going to ever be Christ. But why do we do the role that we do? It's not because our wife is so amazing, although mine is. But, you know, some of you might struggle. I don't with that at all. But it's because we love like Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? And all of our imperfections and, 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 uh, and all the things that we, we fail. Um, so just before he concludes, Paul says that this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church in 532, and he makes it very clear the, the um, symbolism and the synergy between the marriage relationship and Christ in the church. And then finally, as we'll see, that the juxtaposition or the close relationship of the household code or our, our positional roles um, to, and that proximity to the passage on spiritual warfare in 6.10 through 20 suggests that that is a spot that Satan loves to attack us. And so, you know, the Holy Spirit does everything for a reason. So the fact that we have to strap on the armor it comes in right after the fact that he just did this whole exhortation on how we're going to perform our role, says Satan's likely to attack us there. So that's why you have the need for the armor. And so our roles become very important, and they're a vulnerable battleground that Satan would seek to get, rage war on us in those spots. And anybody who's been involved or involved in any relationship whatsoever can attest to that. Where have you been wounded the most deeply? It's in your relationships, right? And so... That's the idea. That's not by accident. Satan would seek to destroy you there. Um, so let's take a look then at how we as husbands and wives are to live together to honor the Lord. All right. It's a nice picture, isn't it? The way things used to be. 
<clears throat> I've never actually experienced that uh, as a kid, but I hope in some way we kind of mirror that in some way in our home, and I think that's fairly accurate. Our dogs are bigger, uh, but I love that picture. That was cool. So if you will, turn to 522, and, uh, and we'll get, we'll get a, a look at this set of scripture here, 522 through 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul is projecting a vision for a distinctly Christian marriage. And he bases his instructions here for each spouse, not on what is culturally appropriate. Anybody who lives in this culture understands that. And it wasn't, it was just as uh, in the face of the, of the Roman culture and, and in his time. But so he doesn't base it on culture, but lessons that are derived from the nature of the relationship between ch- the church and Christ, which um, if that is your beacon, you will not get lost. Husbands are called to love their wives in the way that Christ loved the church, and wives are called to recognize and follow the leadership that their husbands provide. So 5, 18, and 21 say, Be filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And we start here to show the close connection between the admonition to submit to one another from verse 21 that we talked about that was really addressing all the relationships within the body, And now the call for wives to submit in that same continuation of thought makes this a very natural extension of thought. And and I think that's a good thing to start off because I know that that can be a spot where it's difficult for ladies, especially in our culture, to understand this idea of submission. It's just a continuation of thought that he's had. We submit to everybody for the basis of unity to glorify the Lord. And so here now, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I've got it. Here we go. Paul calls on Christian wives to follow the leadership of their husbands. He does not thrust on them a a demand for blind uh, servitude, but appeals to them to comply willingly with the husband's leadership. Submit It's the same word in 521 we talked about. It's commonly used for ordered relationships in a social structure. And and you found it all throughout Scripture. And it's distinguished from obey. And we'll talk a little about this nuance of obey and submit. But it's distinguished from obey. It's done out of fear or reverence of Christ. And it's motivated by selfless love. And that's an important distinction. And the main idea here is that women should not seek to assert themselves in the home in a way that could be viewed as ruling, controlling, or dominating. 
And those are a good way to kind of to check yourself and for husbands to, to have a, um, a metric to, to uh, uh, gauge against. Instead of that, it should be acknowledging the God-given role assigned to the husband and respect the leadership that he is trying to provide for his family. Paul instructs wives to consider how they would respond to leadership that the risen Christ provides to the church. And this is really where your motivation would come from. The way that, that wives respond to Christ should then inform the way that they respond to their husbands. And that's a lot easier, isn't it, to see the perfect Christ than to see your imperfect husband? No man perfectly embodies that shepherding love that Christ did. It just doesn't happen. But thankfully for millions just like myself, Paul does not condition the wife's response on the perfect obedient of her husband to Christ. Paul never tells a wife to follow a husband's lead into sin. That's important. At that point, the teaching of the apostles that we must obey God rather than men, that would apply here from Acts. But this call to submission applies even in the case of a believing wife living with an unbelieving husband. Um, And so that's really important. And you say, okay, well, why? Why do they have to submit in this way? And verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And the the reason that Paul instructs wives to submit to their husbands is due to the fact that the husband-wife relationship in the Christian household is modeled on the Christ-church relationship, like we've said before. And this headship illustration really sets the context and it establishes a, a really a duality, a dual notion of leadership and provision. Christ not only gives guidance, direction, and inspiration for his body, the church, but he also provides strength, help, and sustenance for his people. And based on this, we have to understand that Paul is assigning authority to the husband when he, he uses the word head. And there's some debate about that. So when he says head, that's a leadership position. Um, and when Paul says that Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior, this statement is entirely Christological. There's, um, you'll hear every once in a while, not in our circle, but that gets distorted. And when he says that Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior, that's not a role that we fulfill, husbands. We don't do that. We have no part in the salvation of anything That is totally Christ, his work on the cross. But it does show the sacrifice, and we'll get into that a little bit, to which we would take our own initiative in loving our wives. But Paul goes on to say that now the church submits to Christ, and so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is a similar reiteration, but he adds in everything. And it's also important, that little word as, it's it's an important little adverb. Um, and it introduces the pattern for the wife's submission to the husband. So how do you submit in a way that is similar to how the church submits to Christ? Um, in everything indicates that this should be just the normal disposition of the wife towards her husband. It means that the wife should cultivate an attitude of affirming. This is important. Wives, you're taking notes. Affirming, supporting, and her respecting her husband's leadership without holding back in certain areas where she wants to maintain control. There's going to be these natural deficits that arise in your husband's leadership. You have to fight against that desire to usurp that authority and take control. And that's hard, especially where, you know, we might go down a bad path for a little while. We will learn through it, especially if you have a believing husband. But even if you don't, the Lord will protect that in some way. 
Um, so you need to restrain yourself in that area. Hold back that desire to maintain control. And again, submit does not mean obey. And everything does not include sin. It doesn't include abuse. But everything outside of that, that's what he's talking about there. And it's really uh, unambiguous. So it's not a hard thing to understand. It's a hard thing to apply. But it's not a hard thing to understand. And this is why the curse hit right at the heart of that, that lesson. So that's wives. Wives, affirm, support, and respect your husband's leadership and submit to it. So we'll go to husbands here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And now Paul sets a high standard for the kind of love the husband should have for his wife. The example is that of Christ sets is uh, the example that Christ sets is for a husband to be willing to sacrifice everything for the benefit and the well-being of his wife. And that's really why I have this picture of up here of of Christ carrying his cross. Um, dying to yourself should be a natural part of your leadership as husbands. And that makes it so much easier for your wife to submit. It makes it so much easier when you screw up, but you're doing it humbly and self-sacrificially, and your wife sees that, and you see that duality of mutual submission, you submitting to Christ and your desires, and your wife submitting to your imperfect leadership. The love that Paul speaks of here should be the regular and hallmark feature of the husband's affection toward his wife. It doesn't make any um, provision for a wife to earn in any way that or merit that husband's favor. This command entails the husband's responsibility regardless of his wife's behavior. So whether a health condition arises or appearance or any other potential deterrent may arise, the fact that Christ loved the church even in her most unlovely and I love the word unbecoming state, that's a very nice way to sugarcoat how you were before you were saved. But even though Christ loved you in that way, it defines the love commitment that Christ expects from a Christian husband. And so no matter how unruly or how anything your wife may become, it doesn't change what your role is. Just like it doesn't change the wife's responsibility to submit when you are completely imperfect in your leadership. It's the same thing. It's not predicated on her. It's predicated on Christ. Um, in a word, you could say that this type of love is unconditional. And so the extent of Christ's love for the church is expressed in his action of giving his life for the church. This is how we understand the ultimate uh, sacrifice. 525, uh, the back part of that, Paul uses the same expression earlier in the chapter when he speaks of how Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us from 5.2. Now, fortunately for most of us, it doesn't mean we're going to have to die for our wives. We don't have to go you know, in this gallant effort of, you know, protecting our wife. You know, I think sometimes we romanticize that. Most likely, we won't have to die for our wives. But you will have to die to time and preference. You'll have to die and deny yourself of resources and self-gratification. That is a way to die to yourself in order to show love for your wife. And in 26, verse 26, he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so now Paul here is explaining how the church has been set apart for Christ and purified for the proclamation of the gospel that we receive by faith. And the purpose behind Christ's self-sacrifice was what? We talked about this in the very beginning in 1 through 3, that he was to sanctify for himself a people. That's why he died. 
And sanctification, it has a dual meaning. So there's the clean, there's a cleansing aspect to it that happens over time. But there's also that set-apartness that is speaking of here as well. And the Word of God is what does that, that sanctifies, that matures every believer, including your wife. And so husbands, the natural extension of that is to lead your family, lead your wife with the Word of God. Not your preference, not your desires, not how you like to see things done necessarily, but by a standard that is the Word of God so that she has something to measure that against. And you have something to measure your expectations against. And then in verse 27 and 7, he says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so Christ's ultimate goal is to be fully united with this purified church when he returns. And Christ's purpose in sanctifying the church is so he can present the bride, his bride, to himself at the end of time. And he goes on to say the church will be holy and blameless. And then this takes us all the way back to the beginning where Paul praised God for the purpose of his election was so that he would be holy and we would be holy and blameless in his presence. And so there's a great symmetry here when you look at this from a Christological um, uh, comparison to our model rather for our, our marriages. And it just elevates it. It takes it away from this human institution with two sinners that are just ramming into each other continually. And it gives you, so, it gives you a higher goal to attain to, which is to not mar the gospel, not mar what Christ has done, and to look to your respective roles and honor that as Christ, uh, or in Christ rather. And so now we get back to the husbands here in verse 28, and he says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And so in the same way there, as Christ loves the church, sacrificing and caring for her purity, caring for her every need. So how? How do we do this as husbands? We're to love our wives as we naturally love our own bodies. And why would we do this? Because the one who loves his own wife loves himself. And if you remember from Leviticus 19, 18, I'm sure you guys is just jumping off the page to you. But it says in there a very common teaching, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, Paul said in Galatians 5, 14, that the whole law is fulfilled in that one command. And this is the kind of love that God demands that begin in the home with men, husbands, loving their wives. And then you see, again, just the symmetry and the, and the commonalities that run throughout Scripture where this is not some out of left field teaching. It's very consistent going all the way back to Leviticus, going all the way back to the Old Testament of how we would fulfill the love of God and our obedience to Him. It's in loving others. We tell our kids all the time, think of others more important than yourself. It's the same concept. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. <clears throat> and then finally in 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the climax of Paul's exhortation 
the husband should love his wife because she has become an integral part of him. And I love that. I love that. The two have become one flesh. This also illustrates that intimate bond that Christ has with his church. And it's, it's telling. As much as we learn about our role as husbands um, and uh, in relation to our wives, we also learn a great deal about Christ's perspective on the church, don't we? When we have this, this model to, to, to understand this human institution that we get a picture, not only of what our call is to be as husbands, but to see what Christ does for the church and how he's intimately involved with us. And that's a beautiful thing. Just as church, the church is joined to Christ, also our wives are joined to us. Um, and so what's neat here is that Paul completes his admonitions to husbands and wives without qualifying them. We talked about this a little bit. He doesn't say husbands love your wives if they properly submit. He doesn't say wives submit to your husbands if they love you just like Christ loves the church. He tells us to do it because it's our proper obedience to God and the marriage structure that he designed. The love and the submission will always be imperfect because of the ongoing influences that have really been plaguing Ephesians, this whole enemy that's this undercurrent of an even evil force, which we've, we've said multiple times here is the flesh, the world, and the devil. Those things would plague that attempt, but it doesn't take away our responsibility to, to obey, not predicated on how uh, the other person is, is uh, doing their part. It only talks about how you do your part. That's it. And I like that. And every time we're in a counseling situation, what do we say? We don't say, go and, uh, and do these things if. We say, no, the Bible says to do it, so go do those things, regardless if. And that's the same thing that Paul is talking about here. Okay, so let's move on to the rest of the house then. So that's husbands and wives. So wives, submit to your husbands, please. And husbands, please love your wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificially. 6, 1 through 9, if you guys will look there and follow along with me as we read here. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with them. And so I jumped the gun a little bit there. But we're starting with children, because that's where Paul starts. That's where we start. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. So a lot of you are not children anymore. In fact, I don't think any of you are children anymore. But some of you are parents still, and so this is very applicable. And also this idea of honoring does carry over into our adulthood. And so, uh, so we want to look at it. I got one kid. Hey, kid. How are you doing? Um, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Paul begins first by addressing children who are in the subordinate role in the household, right? He tells them to obe- be obedient because this is their obligation before God. Again, why do you do it? Because it's your, you're obeying God. 
It's worth noting here, I talked about the idea of submitting versus obey for wives. Here he uses the word obey for children. Submit is not strong enough to express that unquestioning compliance that is expected from children toward their parents. Deuteronomy 21.18 warns the stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother will not listen to them when they discipline him. And we as parents must set boundaries for our kids. And then we have to expect them to obey them. And failure to do this results in God's displeasure and, um, and, uh, and leads to children to rebel against the Lord. And that is a very, we've seen that happen, right, throughout some of our relationships. God revealed to the priest Eli through Samuel that the prophet, that he would judge Eli's family. Why? Because his sons made themselves contemptible and Eli failed to restrain them. And so Eli was held culpable for that. And in the Lord here refers to the word obey. So what do you obey? You obey in the Lord. And Paul is appealing to children to have an obedience that goes beyond the because I said so motivation. And we can use that sometimes. We have that prerogative as parents. But, but uh, for a compelling reason for kids, it's not because the parent is perfect, just like it wasn't that our wives are perfect, and it's just not that your husbands are perfect. You still do what you have to do under the Lord, submit and love. Here, children, regardless of how well parents do it, have to obey. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, verse 2. For younger children in the home, it means obeying the rules and instructions. Got to do that one, kid. For adult children, which is most of us, right, that we've left the home, it shows respect and caring for our parents as they age and, and having um, a, a relationship that is pursued. Um, and then thirdly, or on verse 3 here, it says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So God promises two blessings for children that obey their parents. He promises prosperity and a long life. And, and they're high, these promises are highly motivating. We don't need to overly spiritualize this. This doesn't have any hidden meaning. These are promises held out to every believing child. If they obey their parents, it will lead to their well-being and long life on the earth. Again, it's a proverb. It's a general guide. It's not every time. There are exceptions to it. But if you're being obedient uh, to parents, you, much, you run a much lower degree of risk of doing something foolish. It's going to end in your short, uh, short life. And so that's the idea for, for, uh, for kids. And so parents, what do you do? You expect that. And there's a whole host of books that you can go into and a whole host of classes on how to go and enact that. But the basic fundamental is that you expect it. And so you do something about that. Now, you don't do it uh, in a harsh way. And we're going to see Paul's tender care for the, for the family here because the very next after he admonishes children to obey uh, unquestionably, he then tells fathers exactly uh, what their role is. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul warns fathers not to treat their children in such a way that they'll become angry or embittered. And fathers, we have got to exercise sensitivity and care in how we interact with our children especially in how we discipline them. But we need to carefully weigh the potential impact of our words and our actions before we respond. And this is, doesn't Paul just get to the heart of where we struggle? I mean, it's so quick for us to fly off the handle and respond before thinking. And Paul is telling us to slow down and be measured 
Otherwise, you might embitter your children. This section here is ruling out some of the things that we do so easily, like having overly harsh words or insults or sarcasm against our children, nagging them, demeaning comments toward them, whether it's appearance or their character, inappropriate teasing, unreasonable demands, and anything else that can be taken as really just being provocative. You know, the, word, the world has a word for it. I won't say it here, but you know, that sums up a very negative character attribute. If you find yourself, and I would encourage you to not let that go, and if you're taking notes, write that down. Harsh words, insults, sarcasm, nagging, demeaning comments, inappropriate teasing, unreasonable demands. All those things are ways that provoke your children to anger and harden their heart. Harden their heart not only against your love and your future relationship with them, but hardens their heart against the gospel. Makes it that much harder. In Colossians 3.21, Paul instructs his fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And can you just think of anything sadder than your child being discouraged in the Lord as a direct result of your actions against them? And if you do that, and I love shepherding a child's heart in here because one of the biggest things that I took away from that entire book is that readiness to repent. And if you have something to repent against your children against, go and do it unconditionally. Repent. Because we will wound them, but we can also, in those times of repentance, model the Christian um, way of life, that model that Christian repentance and see that the, pow- that the Lord can give you power over your sin and um, has forgiven you, and you can also go and seek the forgiveness of your child. Don't be too big to do that. So if we're not to do that, if we're not to uh, embitter them and be harsh with them, what are we to do? Well, it says we're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for telling us what to put on here. We have the ultimate responsibility of raising our children in a way that they will understand the essence of the Christian faith, and we're to instruct and admonish them on how to live this out. Very simple. Instruction here, it's general training. It's, it's the total education of the child. Proverbs 19.20 used the same word. Hear, son, the instruction of your father that you may gain wisdom for the future. And admonition is more narrowly focused. And this is the verbal counsel, including exhortations for proper behavior. It includes warnings. It includes rebuke. It's specific. It's narrow. It's an admonition to do something that you have recognized as, as um, failing to comply or as just a warning that's very specific in nature. Lust, lying, uh, hard work, things like that. How does that measure up to the Word of God? And we are to firmly, gently, and patiently lead our children to the throne of God. And that's the idea. If you want to sum up that whole section of what God's, uh, Paul's calling us to do, is to firmly, gently, and patiently lead our children to the throne of God. If you do that, you'll be fulfilling the rest of your role. So, we move on from the house, really, to... Um, to slaves. And so there's not a direct correlation for us in America other than really our employee relationship. How do we serve those that we are under the authority of and kind of a um, uh, employer-employee relationship? So it says here in verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people-pleasers, 
but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill, with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And so, really here, Paul's telling slaves to comply with the orders of their masters. And he addresses slaves in this Christian community, which is really neat, uh, as free, moral agents capable of thinking for themselves and acting with moral responsibility. This was revolutionary. To address a slave in any way directly was countercultural, and it shows the power of the gospel to transcend our roles in life. But here he's telling them, he's speaking to them as if they have every individual right to, um, to live as citizens within that society, but he holds them responsible for their reactions um, to their masters and to the world. But it just really, it's amazing that he addresses them in this way. And it talks about, just like I said, it transcends that relationship. The way of dressing these slaves, it makes it a very clear parallel to our relationship as, as employees. And so I want to talk about it because this is important, especially for anybody who's out in the workforce. This is a witnessing ground for us. And so Paul set, addresses it, so we will too. And he qualifies this relationship in six different ways. If you're taking notes, there's six ways that we qualify this um, based on the, we'll say employee, but uh, slaves, new status as belonging to Christ. So first, Paul commends that they should obey with respect and fear. This is not a new attitude. This is the attitude that all Christians should have in serving the Lord in every single relationship. And so we start there. The idea is to have respect for those who are over you. Respect the position over you. And secondly, slaves should respond with a sincerity of heart, he says here. This is to have hearts innocent of an improper motivation. Now we're getting to the heart. King David said, And I knew the Lord that you are the one who tests hearts and you love righteousness. What is your heart motivation in the workplace? And third, slaves should obey as they would obey Christ. This is not a situation where the slave, master, or employer represents Christ. Far from it. It's simply that we're to serve our masters with the same devotion that we serve Christ. That same zeal, that same passion that we serve Christ, we do in the workplace as well. And whatever you do, Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and Father through him. And then the fourth and fifth ways that slaves should provide their service is expressed in this kind of contrasting attitude and behavior. First, he says not to be serving just to be seen as a people pleaser. You can spot these guys a mile away. You see it. And it turns your stomach for a good reason. It's an improper motivation. It's superficial. It shows weak character. And by contrast, believing slaves should be motivated to serve their human masters well, precisely because their ultimate indenturing, their ultimate uh, slave relationship is not to that boss or not to that master. Who is it to? It's to Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we are very aware of this. And that's why, again, the context of one through three is so critical because it sets the foundation of why we would ever endeavor to do this stuff. Because it's not easy, is it? It's not easy to treat somebody who is an unbelieving, immoral person over you and respect them. Well, we do it because we understand that we're slaves to Christ, not to that guy. 
but we don't want to mar the gospel in front of him. And so that's why we do it. Serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. That's what Deuteronomy 10, 12 says. And then finally, Paul asks uh, these guys, these slaves, these employees in our context, with a good attitude as to the Lord, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord. We serve as a service is being done for the Lord himself. This is the way of thinking, this way of in thinking enables us to overcome the temptation to judge the motivation of our earthly masters. It's so easy to do that. And any of you guys who have had to submit to guys that you just think are incompetent or worse, you know, immoral, it's very easy to start judging those motivations and then deciding what you're going to comply with. And here Paul says, look, if you're in that relationship, then you serve him and you respect him because of your your love for the Lord. Um, So here then, okay, great. If we're masters, what do we do? If we find ourselves in this role of leading people, and a lot of you do, and I would cause you to think, okay, maybe you're on the very bottom rung of your, um, your workplace. Who else are you leading? Right? You're leading people in a Bible study. You're leading people in, um, in a ministry. You're leading people. You're a leading figure among your friends or your unbelievers or in your family. Oftentimes, a lot of us, though despised by some of our unbelieving family, at the same time, isn't it funny that they turn to us for all the heavy lifting and the responsibility stuff? There's something that they recognize in our character, hopefully. So if you're a leader, consider this. But many of us are leaders in the workplace. We have people working directly under us. I think probably Don holds the record in this room for... How many employees do you have under you right now, Don, working at Hodel's? About 100. Yeah, I'm eight. So <laughs> like 10 times more than that of mine. So uh, Don understands this well. But masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven so that there's no partiality with him. And so Paul is suggesting that many of the same attitudes and traits that characterize the believing slaves should also characterize the slave owners. That's revolutionary. This would include a positive attitude towards slaves or your employees, goodwill towards your employees, wholeheartedly committing yourself to doing the will of God. There is very much a responsibility for those under you you're living under the recognition that they too, uh, I'm sorry, that we, that we too are slaves of an ultimate master. The same Lord Jesus Christ who is the ultimate master of the slaves that we just talked about is also yours as the leader, as the master. And the principal motivation for slave owners or employers to treat uh, those under you this way is that, that we're under the same authority of the same master. And since our master shows no preferential treatment based on socioeconomic status or honor or any of those things, then we too are not to have any preferential treatment. And so ultimately this, this universality of, that is shown in God's equal distribution of the gospel, meaning that there's no, no barrier to who the gospel might reach. Um, Romans 2.11 says that there's no preference for Jew or Gentile And so this truth should form our understanding that we have much more in common with our brothers and sisters in Christ than social rank. And it's why we get together and have people at our house that, you know, have a whole bunch of money and at the same dinner table as people who have nothing. Who cares? What is our commonality? 
It's Christ. And it's the same thing in, in your workplace. And oftentimes you are in charge of unbelievers. And what kind of representation of Christ are you going to show to those folks? You know, are you going to be completely detached from anything personal going on in their life and really don't care but work hard for me? Well, you're much more like a Roman slave master than you are uh, a servant of Christ who has been put into a leadership role to care for those in your charge. This is hard. Men, especially, like, we have a lot of hats we wear. A lot of these have been brought up. We're fathers. We're husbands. We're in the church. And then we're also in this workplace. And there's an equal waiting, or at least not an equal waiting, but there is a charge to us to care for those folks under us in a similar way that we're caring for our wives, in a similar way that we're caring for our children. That's a tall order. You get spread thin. And so you have to be thoughtful about how you're going to spend your time. You know, I think we talked about that last week, right? That be careless, don't be careless with your time. And to be thoughtful about what actions you're going to put off and put on. All of this rolls up because it's not an easy thing to do if you aren't thoughtful about it. And so that's the idea there. So those are, those are our roles. Husbands, wives, children's fa- children, fathers, slaves, masters. A very common way of, of bleeding all, uh, leading to um, this culmination based on the put-offs and put-ons that were based on this call to unity, that were based on what Christ had done for us in the beginning. And so this last section that we're going to look at here is the whole armor of God. And so I said we were calling this thing, uh, know your role and strap on your armor. Here is our armor of God. Thank goodness for Google. So we get all these pictures. So we'll look together, if you would, at 610 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, and for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so the aim here of walking worthy, remembering that's the whole uh, basis here, walking worthy of God, is actually found in a profound struggle that goes beyond simply putting forth more effort. It goes beyond getting past obstacles, the human obstacles. It's a bigger thing than that. You're engaged in a bigger picture. And if you're just looking here, you're missing it. And that's why this section is so important because it takes a step back. It almost kind of peels back the whole scene. You know, back in, uh, in the day when uh, there would be a battle waging, where would the general go? The general wouldn't go and sit right here. The general would get up on a hilltop somewhere. Why? Because he could see the whole battle playing out before him. And Paul has done that for us here. He's been very specific. 
in this last couple of chapters, talking about put-offs and put-ons, things that we find ourselves fighting with, very specific uh, areas where we might be sinful and how to get around that. And he's gotten into our roles and he's gotten into our home and he's gotten into our bed and he's gotten into our dinner table and gotten very close with us. And now he says, don't make a mistake in thinking that this is a human thing. It's big and you are in a fight whether you know it or not. And so he steps back and he shows us that there are extremely powerful forces that strategize and carry out plans that derail Christians. These are the powers who held humanity in bondage before the redemptive work of Christ that we referenced in 2.2, if you recall that from a few weeks ago, and now threatened to find an inroad or set up a base of operations in the lives of people who have come to know Christ. He talked about that in 4.27. And the prominent theme of union with Christ and the new identity of believers, they, they come to a climax here in this section because it's through this relationship and all that it entails that believers are strengthened to resist the powerful attacks from the evil one and his emissaries. We have a foe. It's the devil himself. We have a foe. It's your flesh. We have a foe. It's, your, it's the world that we live in. And we're called to be strong in the Lord. We're called to be in the fight. And we, how do we do this? We do this through a growing, deeper knowledge of the present and a, and a present relationship of dependence on the one who is powerful enough to do it. Because if you're doing it on your own, you're going to fail. And all of you could probably raise your hand if I asked you to give us examples of how you failed in your own power. And we talked about this a little bit. If you remember back in 4, we talked about Paul prayed for everybody to understand the power that we have accessible to us. He talked about that. And he, he said, I want you to know how much power you have in the Holy Spirit available to you. Now the fact that Christ rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God gives us power. And he's coming back to that now. And so at the same time that we are called to grow in a self-awareness of our new identity as well. Look, guys, we know the truth. We've received righteousness. We've experienced salvation. And we've been endowed with the Holy Spirit. And now we're able to exercise increasing faith in God. We have all these things available to us. And so that's what Paul's telling us to do. He's saying, practice truthfulness. Become more righteous in your behavior. Become more pure in your thoughts. Become more pure in your actions. And the danger of not doing this is that neglect here leaves open a window that makes us vulnerable to the devil and his powers, and he'll exploit them. And so in order to accomplish this, God makes available his power, his resources. Paul sums it up in a, in a great word picture here, but that's what it's talking about. And we're to put these gifts to battle. We're to get in the fight. We're to strap them on and we're to get in there and fight. Spiritual warfare. And so first Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We must have great dependence on the Lord and his divine power. And we need to face our enemies and live the kind of life that God calls us to live. And then he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. He explains to us how to gain strength and spiritual power from the Lord. And we're called to put on the gifts that God will use to assist us. 
These can be both offensive and defensive, as we're going to see. But the whole idea of Ephesians, and if you've been paying attention, the world, the devil, and the flesh, these have been, again, as I said, these, these dark characters that run throughout this story. And they're important, though, because those are the, the, it's the backdrop to which we have all of these admonitions that Paul has been telling us. Um, it's the thing that we were saved from, one through three, and it's the thing that we are to be doing battle against in specific ways. And, and the idea here is that the devil is an intelligent being that carefully strategizes plans that will hit you where you're vulnerable. Now, the devil's limited. He can't be all places at all, at all times. He is not God, but he has emissaries. He has an agenda, and he is the prince of this world. And so he has great power. And we're here called to stand against the devil and everything that he would conceive of to achieve his ends. So quickly, we're going to go through these by way of really kind of an introduction to them. You could go deep, 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 deep on these, and there's great sermons on these. But first piece of armor is the belt of truth. I love what MacArthur says in the study Bible. The Roman soldier wore a loose-fitting tunic, and his cloth was dangerous in hand-to-hand combat. you got all these things that an enemy can just grab and throw you to the ground. So the belt was necessary to cinch up the loosely hanging material, he says. Girding up was a matter of pulling in the loose ends as preparation for battle. And the belt that pulls all the spiritual loose ends is truth. Or he says, truthfulness. The idea of sincere commitment to fight and win without hypocrisy. Everything that hinders should be tucked away. And I love how simply MacArthur puts that. It's, you know, if you, I don't know, guys, if you've ever been into, like, and you're a kid, like, you get yourself ready, you know, you roll your sleeves up, you take your jacket off, maybe you make a big show. But the idea, though, is that I'm getting ready to face somebody here, and I'm getting ready to get in the fight. And if any of you guys are veterans, you know, you clean your gun, your boots are strapped on tight, your armor is situated, you do a weapons check, whatever it is, you're mentally preparing for a battle. And that's what he's talking about here. You put the belt on because that's what's going to get all the encumbrances tucked in in a way, and you're getting ready to get into a fight. It's a mental preparation. The second weapon is the breastplate of righteousness. And this involves an intimate knowledge of how the gospel was applied to your life. That's why one through three is so important. Because that's the truth of your salvation. That's the bedrock. And that's what he's referencing here. We have to gain a full knowledge and appreciation of our new identity in Christ and the righteousness that is ours in Christ. And one of the strategies of the devil is to call into question our status before God. Have you guys experienced that? You're in a battle and you had sinned. Something has happened. It's rocked your very foundation. And where does that foundation hit? Am I even saved? Soon as the devil's got you there, job done. He's going to move on to somebody else because you are sidelined. What happens? You don't volunteer as much. How can I teach kids if I don't even know if I'm saved? How can I get up here in front of you guys and make claims from the Bible if I don't even live up to it and I'm questioning my own salvation? And so what? You're sidelined. It's all the devil needs. He doesn't need you. He can't take your salvation. And he's fully aware of this, by the way. But he can make you ineffective, completely ineffective. And that's what it's talking about here. Paul continually counteracts this by always reassuring us that we are saints. Um, 
I forget the sermon that MacArthur does, but he talks about being a saint, being referred to as a saint. And it's kind of a weird thing to, you know, hey, Saint Gabe or Saint, you know, Patrice, you know, we don't say that, but Paul does. And it's a reassurance. You are a saint. You just don't live like one yet on this side of heaven, but you are a saint and that's assurance. So that's the idea. He says that in 1.1, 1, 1, 1, 4, 1, 15, 1, 18. He calls us saints for a reason. The third item here is shoes ready to share the gospel. And so the proclamation of the gospel represents a major assault on the kingdom of Satan, no doubt. By his work on the cross, Jesus bound up um, the Satan's uh, desires, and he can, he can now fr- um, free the captives from Satan's domain and announce the good news of salvation It's ironic here that in a context of warfare to find a reference to peace as a weapon. That was a a note from Arnold, and I liked it. It was neat to kind of think about that, and it's so true. But the warfare that we are engaged in, this is important. The warfare we're engaged in does not view people as enemies, but as victims. So our enemies are victims. Our ultimate enemy is, is sin. But the people are not enemies, and that's well, I think we need to understand a little bit is when we are so wrapped up in specific sins that repel us or make it repugnant to us when we think about them too much, that it's not, it's not them that we hate, right? It's the sin that we hate, and we would seek to rescue them from that. And so one of the weapons we have is a weapon of peace. It's the gospel. What can go in and restore family values and restore a marriage being defined between a husband and a woman, it's the word of God. It's the gospel that will do that. And so we save our repugnation, not for the sin of homosexuality or the the desire to bring that forth. We save our repugnation for the sin itself and we go give them the gospel to rescue them from that. And it helps us be much more gracious, by the way. The fourth weapon here is the shield of faith. Faith which is trust in God's power for his assurance about our new identity in Christ. It's conveyed in this image of a shield that will thwart the fiery arrows of Satan, which represents the powers of his many and varied attacks on us as believers. And I love, I love this. We were talking about this last night, so I had to keep it in. The type of shield spoken here is a large shield. It's like the size of a door, right? I have no idea how strong these Romans were, but literally like they would just destroy me. You know, I think they're so strong, but it's the size of a door, right? He would be able to, a soldier would be able to crouch under it and be completely protected by arrows that are shot from the, uh, from the adversaries. And they would ignite these things. Now, oftentimes they would cover them in, in animal skins that, so when the darts would hit them, it wouldn't ignite your whole shield. It would just extinguish them. And that was the idea here. It's not that little circular shield from, um, from, what was that one with Russell Crowe? The, uh, what is it? Gladiator. Yeah, this guy has one movie reference in there, right? It's not that little one. It's a huge shield. And this huge shield is the protective nature of our faith. The confidence and trust you have that God will protect you from the powers of the devil are depicted uh, are, as that shield of faith. And the, the, the powers here are shown as flaming arrows. On a practical note, these flaming arrows vary widely, and they're often very specific to your own sin nature. But it can be interjections of evil thoughts into our minds. It can be persecution from political 
um, powers, certainly not as much for us, but a lot of our brothers and sisters in other areas of the world. Thoughts of accusation of sin that bring intense feelings of guilt. That's a, that's a favorite one of, of the devil. False teaching by those claiming to be believers. That's a huge issue. It always has been from the first century. Where did the devil go? He went to provide an alternative gospel that sounded similar. Go back to Genesis. Where did the devil go? He went to just slightly change the directive that God gave that just threw us all into chaos. And same thing there. Uh, it can be a direct demonic attack. Uh, it can be temptations to engage in behaviors that might displease God. Thoughts of, uh, da- uh, thoughts of doubt, disobedience, rebellion, lust, malice, fear, you name it. It's a flaming arrow. What's going to extinguish it? Your great big door-sized shield of faith. Faith. It will keep us from that. The fifth weapon is the helmet of salvation. And this is not so much the certainty of deliverance at the end of time. It's important here. It's the present dimension of salvation. Paul said in Ephesians 2.5, you have been saved. Right now, before us, you're saved. So putting on salvation means to realize and appropriate our new identity in Christ. And the sixth weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Paul urges us to to make use of this scripture as a means of defense against every form of demonic attack. This is what Jesus did in the desert, right? uh, Satan tempted him, and how did he dispel him? With the word of God. Um, And so we understand the thorough understanding of scripture is important. And then finally, prayer. Now, prayer is not uh, a weapon, but it's at the heart of spiritual warfare. It's prayer in 618. It's not, um, it's not perfunctory obligation that you just go to a couple of times a day. It's, it's really seen by Paul as this extraordinary opportunity to communicate with God who has all this power that's making it available to us. And it goes beyond to pray for others in, this, in some sort of crisis or uh, having problems or health problems. It's not that. It's, it's prayer that's intercessory. It's before the crisis hits. It's praying for other people and praying for yourself and this idea of unity among the believers that we are intercessorily praying for one another. This is the type of prayer that Epaphras had in Colossians. He said, Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. And then we see Paul here say, pray for me, by the way. Paul had doubts. Paul was a man who had to fight this fight. And he said, I need prayer. Paul needs prayer. Basil, you need prayer. I need prayer. We all need prayer for one another. And this ties beautifully into the idea of unity. And so finally, you guys, this idea of walking worthy, it's, it's based on unity, that's based on humility, that's based on what Christ did in your life. All the put off and put ons, the light, the darkness, the death to life, all those various roles that we find ourselves in can only be successful against these things, against the flesh, against the world, against the devil, if we are seeking to walk worthy the manner to which we've been called in all humility. And we, we do that in every interaction that we have. We do that with an understanding of what God's done for us. And then we can be effective in the kingdom and we can build up the unity of the church. And that's the idea. So thanks for your time, you guys. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to come to you these four weeks. It's been a, pl- a pleasure and a privilege. And I hope it's been helpful in some small way for you as it has been for me.
So I'll go to the Lord in prayer, the Lord in prayer, and then we'll we'll conclude. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for Ephesians. Thank you for your care for us that exhibits um, really the the motivation that you had in your heart from the foundation of the world, which is to set aside people who might bring you glory. And then you had called us now to be ambassadors for your kingdom, to unify the church and go spread the gospel and to resist the devil and to do all that to your honor and glory. And we pray that we would do that here, that uh, those in Grace Bible Church would pursue that eagerly, pursue it with uh, zeal. And we love you and praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.